Hi there. Welcome. Thanks for dropping by. My name is Josh. This is Dharma Punks New York. Thanks for joining. See, I've been the Buddhist pastor and Dharma teacher at New York uh, Dharma Punks uh, since 2005. And uh, so we're psyched on entering our 17th year. Everything I do as a Buddhist pastor in the 2,500-year-old tradition of the Dharma is entirely supported by donations, never a charge. If you would like to support my work, it's uh, the Venmo's Dharma Punks with an X NYC, or there's a PayPal button on the Dharma Punks with an N with an X NYC site. Uh, that's it. That's my pitch. No more of that. So you can uh, settle in. I'll give like a, a talk, and then we'll be putting into practice some of the tools introduced in the talk, in the meditation, and then there'll be time for questions. So uh, tonight's talk is on rumination. We'll talk about what that is, what outcomes of it are, and what we can do about it. So to start, uh, one of my favorite 20th century psychologists who lived up until 1934, a Russian named Lev Vygotsky, who was a de developmental psychologist. And um, he died pretty young, around the age of, uh, I think, 37 or 38. And he was famous for providing a lot of important insights into the acquisition of skills and language. Lev Vygotsky showed um, how inner talk, self-talk, or thought, as we might also call it, develops in a way that's quite distinct eventually from verbal external speech. So for tonight, when I talk about thought, I'm going to use words like self-talk, inner thought, and uh, when I talk about words we say out loud to other people, I'll use speech just to keep them apart. So Vygotsky noted that we learn to think by at first repeating out loud the utterances that our parents say that we hear. And so, for instance, when we're very, very young, around the age of two and three, we hear our parents labeling things in the world for us, dogs, cats, cars, buildings, and so forth. And we repeat the names of objects to breed familiarity. And also children hear their parents issuing to them injunctions or things that we're not supposed to do. So parents say, don't run don't climb in the house, don't uh, eat the cookie before you eat your dinner, don't uh, make a mess, and so forth. So young children, when parents are not around, repeat those words out loud to themselves as a way to gain what's called self-management. We organize and control our behaviors early on by repeating the commands that our parents tell us. And what happens is as we keep repeating the words of our parents out loud, eventually 
Vygotsky noted that as children develop, they stop saying as many words aloud, and then eventually they don't say any of the commands or labels out loud, they just think them internally. But then he noted that even though the origins of thoughts start from repeating the words of others, uh, eventually what happens is inner inner talk, uh, the verbal stream in our minds, uh, begins to take on very, very different characteristics from external speech. Uh, thought is very fast. It's very compressed. We don't use all the words when we're thinking about, oh, you know, what am I going to do uh, for uh lunch tomorrow or what clothes am i going to wear or you know stuff like that we uh omit a lot of pronouns like i we omit very often uh places we'll just visualize instead of say the words in our mind and so it's a mixture of images uh half uh complete uh sentences and he noted that internal thought is far more emotionally intense than very often external speech um writing on the other hand is very very slow detailed everything is nothing's omitted because we try to be as communicative and clear as possible so inner thought and writing are many ways very 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 distinct and writing is far more emotionally regulated than inner thought which is why writing out whatever we're thinking is a tool for emotion regulation so self-talk starts from the outside in in other words um we hear people saying things, we repeat them, and then they become interjected. And then eventually we put all these ideas that we hear from parents and adults around us in our own words, and we forget that all of our thoughts at first originated from other people. And we're because we're putting them in our own words, we tend to believe now that the ideas are our own not in fact the ideas we heard others so you grow up in a family where um people are uh, always repeating not to uh get uh too uh emotional that it's one's job to pick oneself up brush oneself off and keep going no matter what you hear those things you repeat them and then we forget that those ideas were not our own those were ideas that we were exposed to and then began to believe are somehow native or natural that are not just the product of a specific family system or culture so inner thought has of course many valuable functions which is why it's so difficult to tame uh one it helps us with creative thinking we can visualize things that actually don't exist and write novels and visualize paintings or uh, movie scripts or uh, different recipes or uh, we can visualize how we're going to uh, pursue and, and fulfill tasks in different ways 
Um, and uh, internal thought helps us keep on track with our goals. We can remember that our goal is to complete some kind of project at home. And when we start to get distracted by social media or by phone calls or by emails or by other things, inner thought can remind us, oh yeah, I told myself that I was going to uh, work on cleaning up my, I don't know, closet or whatever. So we can stay on track. Um, inner thought, is crucial in that it represents lived experience and turning lived experience into words makes situations recognizable and in being recognizable we gain a sense of safety control and agency we're less overwhelmed so for instance if we're stumbling into an unfamiliar setting we can narrate what's happening and make it seem less unique weird uh so if i walk into a group of people that are shouting loudly uh i can think to uh, to myself oh this is a protest or this is a picket line and that makes the experience seem more familiar and less overwhelming and less threatening um, inner thought helps us run mental simulations so we can, for example, rehearse for difficult dialogues with people. We can prepare what we're going to say in a job interview or if uh, uh, a, a relational partner wants to talk with us um, about something serious. Uh, we can prepare in our minds how we're going to respond. If we've done something that we don't feel very good about, we can prepare our defense or we can uh, ruminate on guilt, but that's going to be coming up in a little while. Um, so mo even more important than helping us recognize external situations, inner thought helps translate our feelings into dispositions we recognize. In other words, the feelings of distrust or lust or boredom or joy or anger. I'm, I look like I was going to act them out for you. I'm for you. I'm sure you know what these states are. So, you know, distrust, desire, boredom, anger, surprise, fear. These start out, uh, they arrive about a half second earlier then we're even cognitively aware of them. So feelings arrive first, and then uh, a region of the brain, the ventral medial prefrontal cortex, becomes aware of the feelings, and then the left frontal lobe names what feeling state we're in. Oh, I'm feeling this sensation of my heart racing, my energy moving towards my limbs, a sense of recoil, that's fear. Or I'm feeling a desire to, I'm feeling an impulse to uh, push, or uh, I'm feeling this heat, and that might be anger, or I'm feeling other sensations that might be um, joy, or attraction, or surprise, you know. So, Inner language helps turn these vague somatic markers into uh, actual emotions that we can recognize, and that's crucial. That's what in developmental psychology is called um, part of the mirroring uh, 
uh, role of parents is first and foremost to name for the child what emotion they're experiencing. Oh, you're frightened. Oh, you're you're hungry. And in so doing, the child learns what these feelings mean. And then the child can integrate those these some feelings that are, you know, just a bunch of sensations and impulses in the body. We can know what they mean. And then we can communicate with other people. Oh, I'm hungry right now because I'm feeling my stomach growling and my, I'm salivating, so I, I want food. Uh, and of course, um, uh, the one of the, you know, sometimes what happens is we get our uh, feelings wrong. Uh, Gazaniga, a great neuros, uh, neuroscientist who worked with split brain patients, um, noted that it's very often uh, an outcome of the left hemisphere guessing what feelings in the body mean that sometimes will completely misapprehend what are real, uh, what we're really feeling. Uh, we often, for example, can translate an underlying feeling of uh, fear with uh, concerns about so, uh, financial insecurity. And in fact, the underlying feelings of fear might be generated by something completely different. So for example, uh, suppose you meet someone at a party and they have a beard and they're wearing a certain kind of uh, suit and tie, and you immediately feel distrust. And that distrust is actually generated because decades in the past, somebody who looked like this person um, was scary or did something that you didn't like. Now you've forgotten that past event, but now you feel distrust and your left hemisphere will now look for reasons to distrust this person. Oh, they're looking kind of shifty. They're not making eye contact. There's clearly something not good with this human being. And Gazaniga and Ledoux and so many famous neuropsychologists noted that uh, very often we're guessing incorrectly and mislabeling what our feelings are. I remember talking with one client many years ago, and she said that for many years she missed labeled uh, fear for lust when she was dating people and that the feelings were so similar for her that she mistook the body sensations that were telling her, no, this person is not safe for you. This person is uh, not making good empathetic contact. You should leave. But she mistook those sensations for desire. So... <clears throat> This brings us to the drawbacks of rumination, uh, the drawbacks of self-talk, I should say, which are, of course, rumination. Rumination is the tendency to focus on negative events, thoughts, feelings, to dwell on these events, thoughts, and feelings, trying to figure out what caused them, what their implications are. And rumination is often fueled by underlying anxiety disorders or chronic stress 
people who have had multiple adverse childhood experiences, which is known as ACEs, are especially prone to uh, rumination. Um, and rumination is also associated with catastrophizing, which means uh, predicting the most unlikely worst case scenario of any situation in our life and believing that the outcome, this dire outcome is plausible if even likely. So of course, uh, when we catastrophize, for instance, somebody gets laid off from a job and at first it feels uncomfortable, but then later on that night, we're spitting out, focusing on why did I get laid off? And then as we spiral the thoughts around, they turn into, I'll never get hired again. There must be something uh, terrible about me. I'm completely an imposter. I'm not good at my work and so on and so forth. So uh, the worse uh, an underlying anxiety disorder or traumas from childhood or the more stress we're under, the more likely or susceptible we are to rumination. Um, painful emotional experiences such as traumas, breakups, uh, social conflict that are too complex to summarize often lead to rumination as well. The more complex a situation is, the more difficult it is to represent easily in a few words in our mind, the more likely we are to repeat the scenario. And in repeating or ruminating, we invariably exaggerate threats and jump to false conclusions or overgeneralizations as they're known. For so, for example, after losing a job, we might uh, jump to the conclusion, I'll never work again. After a breakup, I'm completely unlovable. I'll never find love. I'll be alone for the rest of my life. And we might also jump to false conclusions about what caused the event, such as um, I'll never uh, date Canadians again after we go through a breakup, or I'll never date um, uh, somebody uh, who wants to cohabitate or I'll never, uh, that teaches me for doing this or that. The sooner or the more proximal after a negative experience we get caught up in rumination, the more likely we're going to jump to extreme, unrealistic and unhelpful conclusions. Uh, waiting, allowing the feelings to arise and pass, and then allowing a good amount of time to occur before we reflect and try to find meaning almost invariably leads to far more accurate appraisals, but very few people are willing to do that. Intimidating imminent interactions with people who have power over us, sometimes meeting with uh, relatives, bosses, colleagues, uh, going on dates, uh, can lead to excessive rehearsing, where we spin out uh, anticipating what we're going to say. And 
the more we spin out, we can anticipate hostility because the more we ruminate, the more we're subject to exaggeration and the amygdala adds a sense of fear. And so we, the more we ruminate about things, the more overly reactive we'll be when we actually go into an, an uh, interaction with somebody. So for instance, at the very beginning of relationships, people can at first think about how wonderful it would be to travel with their new partner or live together or have a life with this person. And then after a few months, for some reason, there's a period where their new relation person doesn't respond to a text or to or shows up late for a date or something and then the person spirals out and ruminates and then the more they ruminate the more they anticipate uh negative critical remarks from their new uh, the new person in their life and then by the time they actually do encounter that person they're reactive, defensive, antagonistic, because they've spun out an entire series of conversations in their mind that actually haven't happened. And I know you might be hearing this saying, wow, that's ridiculous. But believe me, my life in counseling is hearing all about this over and over and over again, how individuals uh, in the absence of information will uh, rehearse countless interactions with relational partners or work colleagues or roommates and then as the more they repeat it the worse the more antagonistic it becomes in their mind and then by the time they actually do see that person they wind up picking a fight um so there's a lot of other reasons why rumination isn't any good it diminishes our neural capacity making us less efficient it interrupts functions that are better off automatic if you want to ruin somebody's you know ping pong game or tennis game or golf swing if you know anybody who plays those sports i'm a new york jew i don't have anything to do with them but uh if you know anybody who plays those sports and you want to ruin their game because you're in a nefarious mood, just ask them to explain how they do their backhand or how they swing their golf club or how they uh, hit the ping pong ball. And when you make a smooth automatic movement, you make somebody actually explain it out loud. The verbalizations interfere with the smoothness, smoothness and the automatic quality of the movements and then suddenly they become terrible <laughs> at it because they brought attention to something that shouldn't have excessive attention brought to it um, in fact also task positive states of the brain are far more efficient that's when we're doing something that we're skilled at we don't generally get caught up in inner thought we just do it uh, the more we try to think about or explain how we do tasks that we're very good at, from playing an instrument to cooking to doing our job, uh, designing or organizing or whatever it is we do, uh, the more we think about what we're doing, the less efficient and also the more likely we are to make mistakes. And in fact, um, Killingsworth and Gilbert, 
two Harvard psychologists who did a famous study, a wandering mind is an unhappy mind, also showed that the more we get lost in thought and ruminate, the more unhappy we are. And the more we focus on tasks, task positive behavior, the happier we are. In fact, they said that it's less the external situations in life that cause suffering, but it's really whether we're paying attention to what we're doing that is the most important salient concern when it comes to human happiness. I'm more likely, according to their study, to be happier in a dentist chair, getting, you know, tooth cleaning if I'm paying attention and not lost in thought, ruminating on something. I can be perfectly miserable lying in a warm beach with the sound of the oceans. But if I'm thinking about, oh, you know, will I have enough money in the future to survive when I'm old, that can make me completely miserable and anxious. And so uh, they noted that if you want to be happier in life, think <laughs> or engage in less self-talk and focus more attention on the actual motor or sensations around you and so forth. Um, rumination can rekindle feelings and moods. Neurologists have found that the physiological lifespan of an emotional reaction to stimulus is very often as little as 90 seconds. In fact, very frequently, it's only 90 seconds. So you have an interaction with somebody, they say something insulting, the flush of uh, intensity of heart rate, the uh, rapid breathing, the feeling of your stomach muscles clenching, your jaw clenching, all of that arises and passes in as little as a minute and a half. But if we repeat the story in our mind of, you know, how dare they, why did they say that, that thing to me, why did they not welcome me and so forth, then we can con continually reactivate the basal lateral amygdala and keep the physiological response going and going and going and going. So rumination takes um, uh, fleeting emotional responses to stimuli and makes it last for very long periods. Um, I remember, this is a story I often tell because it was so informative to me. I, um, a couple of years ago was riding over the Williamsburg Bridge on my bike and somebody did something rather foolish. They, out of the blue, just walked their bike into the middle of the bike path and blocked it up. And I didn't see them until the last moment. I, I suddenly saw they had walked out and I screeched to a halt. And I looked at the person and I, I guess my looks basically said, what the fuck are you doing? And I rode around them. And as I started riding down the, the, riding down the bridge, the person called out to me and said, I'm sorry, I ruined your fucking night, asshole, or something like that. A real Brooklyn encounter. And so um, as I was riding down, I was repeating 
that scenario in my mind and then launching all these narratives about, you know, yuppies invading my cherished neighborhood and about, you know, uh, responses I should give and how dare they. And so something that would have lasted 90 seconds was now lasting the entire ride down the bridge. And so when I realized that, I immediately, as I got down to the bridge, did a, just a very basic forgiveness practice, assuming that that guy had had a hard day and uh, let it go because, uh, you know, my repeating the story was actually keeping the anger going. The famous Buddhist uh, apocryphal story, story about uh, the Buddha walking with uh, a novel student explaining that part of the rules of being a renunciate was that you couldn't, uh, as a renunciate, touch a member of the opposite sex. And then as the story goes, there was an old woman trying to cross a, a river and she was endangered. She was being carried away by the stream and the Buddha immediately ran into the river and walked her across holding her arm and helping guide her to the other shore. He walked back and continued to walk with the student and after about a half an hour, the student looked to the Buddha and said, well, I thought you said that we weren't supposed to touch members of the opposite sex. And the Buddha said, well, I put, I let her go a half an hour ago, but you've been carrying her around in your mind for half an hour. So basically he's saying that in repeating stories, we keep the pain or the surprise or the disgust or the upset going. Uh, rumination has in fact been associated not only with anxiety disorders, but as one of the principal underlying mechanisms that develops and maintains depression, dysphoria, suicidal ideations, and even to some degree, post-traumatic stress syndrome, syndrome, in that in repeating in our minds, uh, focusing, ruminating on negative experiences, we're more likely again and again and again to then trigger the affects associated with abandonment, rejection, violence, and so forth. So given that rumination has so many negative implications, we might ask, why do we have it? You know, it's understandable that it's an outgrowth of self-talk, which is necessary and vital for our, our social species. But the key is that um, all of us have what's called negativity bias, a tendency to not only register negative stimuli, but to dwell on negative events and give them hi and highlight threats over opportunities. In our ancestral history, it was more important that we remember, recite, and recall over and over again which bush that had berries also had a snake uh, hidden beneath it, or which area had 
predatory animals or members of another clan that might attack us. And given that we didn't have ways to write down or uh, keep track, we had to repeat in our minds over and over again, bad things that happened to us as a way to prevent them from happening again. So uh, we still have negativity bias. We have not caught up with the fact that our species now lives in vastly safer um, uh, situations than uh, in our past. Our lifespans are twice as long. We're far less susceptible. Even during a pandemic, we're far safer from disease than we ever were in our ancestral past. We're far less likely to be attacked. Violent deaths are a fraction of what they were even a few hundred years ago. But still, we live in mines with basal lateral amygdalas and periaqueductal gray and habanulas, which are regions designed to keep track of negative stimuli and repeat and uh, keep them in mind. And to make it even more uh inevitable the work of dan wagner at uh, also harvard noted that it's all but impossible to suppress thoughts that repeat in our minds it gives birth to what he called an ironic process the more we try to not think about something the more it sets up a process that brings that very thought up again and again and again and again but that doesn't mean that it's uh, rumination is impossible to address in fact there are many 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 tools to address rumination um, and we're going to be practicing some of them in the meditation the fastest way is to distract oneself as wegner noted in his famous study where he told people to not think about polar bears, all they did was think about polar bears until he said to them, you can think if you like about red Volkswagens. Once he gave them a distracting thought, it was very easy not to ruminate and repeat the thought about polar bears. So if you have a ruminating thought, if you can give yourself something else to think about that you is elaborative but is not stressful then that's the buddha's primary tool for addressing rumination and there's a sutta the vitaka santana where it gives uh, where he talks about using distracting thoughts so much of buddhism there are mantras uh phrases that we repeat over and over in our mind the metta loving kindness sutta and so forth if you don't want to do a spiritual uh mantra you can just recite try to remember the lines of uh song and just you know repeat the lyrics in your mind or recite the plot of a film or just give your mind a task that is elaborative that you can focus on but is not associated with threat and then you won't be ruminating if you can keep your focus on the distracting topic um tasks are especially useful in fact rumination is dependent upon 
the default mode operation of the brain, which is ventral medial function of the brain. But if we focus on tasks like, uh, I don't know, uh, cooking, gardening, pottery, uh, playing a musical instrument, drawing, anything with our hands is task positive. Anything that when we do, we get feedback that we have to pay attention to is task positive. Task positive uh, switches our attention away from ventral medial prefrontal default mode network, which is what hosts rumination and essentially can stop inner uh, repeating inner self-talk. Um, anything that addresses chronic stress or underlying anxiety very often will reduce rumination. Um, so for example, uh, self-soothing tools, yoga, uh, certainly lying in savasana, uh, doing any uh, controlled breathing, um, that definitely can reduce. Uh, there are studies linking, in fact, switching off the sympathetic nervous system, restoring homeostasis, and the uh, reduction of rumination uh disclosing thoughts to others and helping uh, having them refrain reframe uh view the experience from a different uh, lens is very helpful studies show that walks in nature uh or any experience that fills us with awe looking at art listening to great music, visiting sacred spaces, uh, looking at uh, cool architecture, anything that fills us with a state of wonder. Wonder is associated, again, with very vastly different neural regions of the brain, parietal, uh, temporal, and so forth, that don't have anything to do with rumination. Ethan Cross, a uh, clinical psychologist, wrote a book called Chatter, which is about um, reducing rumination. And he, his book has quite a number of good tools. One of my favorites in the book is what he calls distanced, distancing self-talk. So as we work through something that's very scary or something that's overwhelming or frightening, refer to yourself in your mind as you. So for example, rather than after a breakup thinking, uh, okay, uh, I just got dumped. I'm, you know, now I'm going to be alone. I hate dating. What am I going to do? You know, I probably won't find anybody out there and whatever. It, the moment we start using the second person, you, so we start thinking, okay, you went through a breakup. You're now uh, going to be facing a period while you're alone, but almost immediately it activates uh, the, not the ventral, but the dorsal medial prefrontal cortex, which is far more empathetic and compassionate a region of the brain. So simply talking to ourselves, not using the assumed I, but in our minds saying you, you or saying your name automatically 
switches us out of default mode into a more socializing type of thought where we're far more likely to be empathetic. Also, Cross talks about the value of imagining a friend in the same situation that we're in and asking yourself, what would we tell our friend to do? That again activates compassion, empathy, far more than just thinking, how am, what am I going to do? One tool that's very efficient is writing out longhand whatever catastrophizing or rehearsing of an imminent conversation. So just write it out at longhand on a piece of paper. Studies show that writing uh, engages the left hemisphere, which actually regulates the underlying, to a degree, the underlying anxiety. And then when the thought comes up, in between, you set aside a time each day to write out whatever repetitive thought occurs. And then if the thought comes up in a time in between, then we simply note it and promise that we'll write it out again when the time comes. Or if it's really insistent, write it out on paper. Invariably works. Uh, I would be remiss if I didn't note it that those prone to excessive rumination who struggle using these uh, non-medicinal tools, um, classically serotonin-based antidepressants are actually extremely efficient in helping people deal with ruminative disorders. Um, that's because they address the underlying anxiety which then activates the incessant need to engage in catastrophizing self-talk. So there's always that. And if you don't want to do use a pharmaceutical solution, there are um, uh, supplements that can help upregulate serotonin, especially 5-HTP. So that's always available over the counter. Any serotonin-based approach will take about a half, uh, 30 days before you notice any positive outcomes because uh, serotonin is, unlike dopamine, takes a long time to upregulate uh, synaptically. So you got to be patient. Rumination finally diminishes our ability to zoom out and gain perspective on whatever issues we're facing in life. So um, uh, anxiety narrows our focus so that we just become aware of the disturbing event or the disturbing thought. So any, any practice that broadens our attention uh, by using all of the senses available to us being aware of what you're seeing right now, what you're hearing, what you're smelling, uh, helps diminish rumination. So taking a moment to focus on our environment, finding a safe, a safe plant, window, uh, piece of art or furniture to rest our attention on, and just keep 
resting the attention on that, that in and of itself broadens one's awareness. Um, the Buddha noted in a famous sutta that if you take a tablespoon of salt and you put it in a glass of water, the glass, the water becomes undrinkable. It's now salt water. But if you take a tablespoon of salt and you put it into a huge reservoir, then the water is still drinkable. And the point of this observation is in focusing our attention on, on difficult topics, experiences, thoughts, or feelings, they become insurmountable and they become the entirety of our life. But if we keep in our awareness everything that's going on in the present moment, if we continuously practice both interoception, awareness of sensations that are not tense in the body, and exteroception, what, are, what am I smelling right now? What am I hearing right now? What pleasant sensations are there visibly in this scenario? Then I, I am given a significant tool to address rumination. So that's all I'm going to spout out. Um, now what I'm going to do is actually lead us on a practice where we put into, into this meditation, we're going to actually rehearse some of these skills so that if you're ever in a situation where you are prone to rumination, you can actually use some of these tools. So thank you for listening and find a comfortable seated position. And uh, so if you need a stretch and uh, move your limbs a little bit, uh, open up your vagal nerve by breathing into the chest. If you want to, tone the vagal nerve you can just go mm, um or something that tones the vagal nerve and uh, softening the belly closing the eyes And just um, try to bring your awareness into your body and see if you can lower your awareness in the body so you don't feel consciousness is floating slightly behind the eyes, maybe in the top of your head. See if you can bring the sensations of your sensations of the lower body, bring them as close to your attention as you can, so you feel your awareness spreading into the body. If you think of the sensations of the body, and we try in this practice not to visualize what the sensations 
um, how they reflect on our act. We don't visualize our body. So for instance, normally in day-to-day -day life, if you have a pain in your knee, you immediately locate that pain and you visualize your knee. But in meditation, it's better just to not localize or make every internal sensation have a geographic location in the body. Just imagine that the sensations in your body are like um, stars flickering in a night sky. And so even though one sensation might be associated with a toe and the other might be associated with a finger, don't visualize your body, just see if you can be amongst these sensations. In a meditation, we can imagine like our awareness is a spaceship surrounded by sensation, by lights and objects or body sensations, as it were. And we can move up close and pay attention to any sensation we want. So not prejudging the way any sensation should be or how we should feel. Just bring your awareness to being in a body as if you've never been in a human body before. Suddenly hear all these strains, movements, feelings, in the front of, or just feelings in general, and uh, states of energy. And amongst all these sensations is this ongoing rhythmic flow of energy called the breath. Just become aware of yourself breathing in, and breathing out a wave of energy moving up and then moving down.
and the practice is to just make returning to the body every time a thought or rumination pulls you away, to just make that return as pleasant and enjoyable. So there's no sense of I've done something wrong or I'm not good at this. In fact, the role is to kind of cherish the times that we become aware that we've gotten lost in thought and then make the return to being in the body is pleasant. So when you find yourself lost in thought, just take a moment, just appreciate that it's the mind's nature to do that. There's no, we're nothing we're doing wrong. And then find the most pleasant sensation either in your body or perhaps a sound around you or any contact sensation that feels comfortable and just return to that pleasant refuge that helps us let go of the alluring uh, imaginary worlds that our thoughts can create. It's an important practice not to try to push away thoughts that claim our attention, but just to bring awareness to a pleasant sensation in the body or a pleasant sound around us or bringing a pleasant image in our mind that is associated with peace, an image of the Buddha or a spiritual figure we admire or a place that we feel safe. 
as a way to, we're not trying to suppress any thought, we're just allowing the thought to be there, but bringing our attention outside of the thought. And that's also how we'll deal with rumination. We're not gonna try to suppress it or push it away. We're gonna allow it to be there. And we're just going to broaden awareness and bring attention back to a theme that is skillful. So at this point, to practice some of the tools, um, I'd invite you to bring up something that uh, might sound uh, like a strange thing to do, but purposely bring into your practice some issue that is daunting, recent or uh, concerning, something that um, might be prone to rumination. Obviously, if there's something that is terribly traumatic, we're not gonna be working with that. Um, we're just gonna be working with something that um, 
is a challenge, but not anything that rises to the level of, uh, a, you know, life-threatening or terrible experience. So try to bring to mind something that is daunting. It could be financial, or it could be concern with career or an interpersonal conflict or um, uh, you know I, I don't we could go on but just see if you can find and locate that theme and just bring it to mind so that you're aware of it and some of the um, challenges that are difficult to sort out. And then what we're going to do is we're not going to try to suppress it. We're going to first just allow it to be there. And we're going to bring to mind a distracting thought that can help push the challenging, dispiriting thought a little bit outside the center of attention. So just allow that uh, issue to still be there, but now bring to mind um, a place that you've always wanted to visit, or travel to, or someplace you'd like to return to, and just imagine yourself arriving at this location and being able to put down your luggage and settle into a beautiful room with an amazing view or a place where you feel really safe. And every time the challenging thought, if it wants to reclaim your attention, just say, I see you, you're allowed to be there. Don't try to suppress it. That will just make it come up with greater force. But just bring back your attention to the pleasant opportunity or place Visualize yourself, of course, uh, learning a new skill. It's for some, going back to uh, an educational institution. For some, it could be uh, a long drive with someone we love. For those that are not visual, think of uh, some set of words that you can recite in your mind. Buddhists very often repeat, may all beings be happy, peaceful, free of stress and suffering. May all beings be well. Or some variation of a positive thought of compassion and 
wishing all beings well. You can just repeat something in your mind, uh, a plot of your favorite movie or some song lyric that you really like. There's no wrong answers. We're simply looking for something to use to replace to a degree a ruminative content with something that doesn't activate stress. Concentrating attention on something pleasant, a safe space is a wonderful way to gain a little space from rumination or a person associated with unconditional friendliness. Another exercise is while you hold in mind a difficult, challenging issue, bring to mind some challenge from your past that now is a distant memory that you've uh, endured, a challenge from the past that seemed insurmountable, insurmountable, but now it never even comes to mind as a way to help us reflect that all issues generally tend to fade with time. So, for example, what were you worrying about a year and a half ago when the pandemic started? Maybe some of those fears have been allayed. Maybe they've been completely replaced. Or some other issue from the past a breakup or a loss of a job that seemed uh, unfathomable, but then you dealt with. Likewise, we can use the mind to travel into the future and visualize ourselves several years from now no longer in any way caught up in these, this specific issue or concern. Just visualize yourself a little older, less encumbered, more free. You just visualize yourself smiling and conveying that it's going to be okay. And uh, lastly, with this present concern or another concern, if you want to bring another challenge to mind, 
Imagine a friend that you cared about facing the same dilemma and what would you, how would you tell them? What would you tell them? Would you tell them that they, you care about them, that they'll be okay, that they're not alone, that this challenge is not unique, it's not their fault? What would you tell a friend in the same situation? Very often, if it's about us, we'll be very harsh or ashamed or feel guilty or feel flawed. But when it's a friend, we would be kind, compassionate, And just know that the way we would support a friend is the right way to support ourselves. And lastly, referring to yourself in the third or second person using you, for example, just what would you tell yourself if you were going to be truly compassionate? So whenever you're ready, taking your time, just slowly become aware of the space around you and try to bring with you any sense of uh, release or calmness or uh, hopefulness that you might have cultivated. Thank you for your practice.